Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. In today's episode, we go back to your high school civics class and discuss the all-important but oft-ignored separation of powers. Cody, Christy, how are you this fine Colorado afternoon? I'm doing well mostly trying to hang in there as best I can dealing with you know all of the fun coronavirus related uh, shutdowns lockdowns work from homes restrictions and you know just the general way of life that we now live yeah it's especially interesting when you go into Denver I had a meeting in Denver today and everywhere is like taking your temperature and like do not enter if you don't have a mask so always a fun time I think Fort Collins, Lamar County up north is a little bit, little bit better situated. We're, I mean, we're not nearly as condensed as you are, but I can't imagine how bad it must be in Denver. Super fun. Yeah, I just avoid. I, I mean, I, I live in Denver, but I just like go out of the city whenever possible. Although working out with a mask is a very new experience that I'm not sure I'm glad to have learned. Drop, <laughs> drop working out and go golfing instead. You can take a mask off on the course. I do that too. I told you, I'm a man of way too many hobbies. I work out, I golf. I'm very bad at golf though. That's what I've learned. Well, I don't think anyone's really good at golf unless you're on TV. I mean, that's not the point of golf. Who, who's good at golf? I mean, really? I don't, I don't know. I feel like my baseball background didn't translate well to like learning how to swing a golf club. No, not really. It's slightly doesn't... different sport, I suppose. Just... I'm reasonably good at putt-putt golf, but that's where my skills end. <laughs> Dude, putt-putt is not to be disdained. It is a, an excellent activity. <laughs> it's very fun. Perfect date night, too. Uh-huh. Easy to social dis- socially distance. Man, social distance. We, we're, we're starting up school here in the next couple weeks. The teachers return next week, and then the next week after we start classes. And we know we've got we're going to put we're putting up plexiglass on our desks so that you know the kids can take their mask off while they're sitting down um but you know we have to extend the day so that passing periods are longer so they can clean the desks down backpacks are in the classroom so they don't have to go to their lockers as much it's just it's crazy i'm 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 kind of i'm i don't know if i'm a negative nancy or pessimist i'm all, i'm already kind of anticipating that we're going back to virtual so i'm just kind of like readying my soul for it i don't know what's gonna gonna happen but yeah we oscillate between in office out of office it all depends but i will say that this might be the first time in my life as an attorney that anybody has considered me to be essential and it just shows (laughs) that we all need lawyers it's a good feeling (laughs) we all so much for bad Bad talking us for the rest of the time. Now we're essential. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. But only now it'll go back eventually. Where they'll you know what you know what else is essential? Mistake. <laughs> you know what else is essential? Spiders are essential too, but no one really like is like, oh yay, a spider! Wow. Yeah, I do not <laughs> want to hear that. Spiders are my Harsh. literal worst fear. So I feel like we're also being compared to spiders right now, and I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> hey, you know if the shoe fits. <laughs> <laughs> Well, today we're getting into separation of powers. Before we do that, we want to kind of explain something to everyone real quick. Uh, We've talked about the uh, Declaration of Independence. We've gone over the Articles of Confederation. We're going to dig a little bit into the Constitution today, Uh, but we want to make it clear to everyone who's listening. We're not a... We're not a government or lawyer show. We're not a history show, although we rely on a lot of those for, for what we do talk about. And what we do want to get to talking about is the idea 
of liberty, how liberty is beneficial to society, how, how it benefits people, um, that liberty is on the whole a positive force for good in the world. Um, what we're doing right now is we're, we're more or less laying kind of a, a groundwork, um, if not just for you, but also for us as, as your hosts so that we understand, you know, we, we got to understand liberty in our own little world as it is now before we can contemplate, you know, the quote unquote libertarian utopia, if such a thing is even existing or ever to exist. But we just want to more or less lay out that we're not here to bore you as teachers, though I'm sure that does come across sometimes for others, that we're not here to lecture you on politics or government or law, just that, you know, this is what we know, this is what we're starting with. And eventually our goal is to really dig deep into kind of the quirks that liberty offers, right? The ideas of, you know, Murray Rothbard versus Edmund Burke versus Friedrich Hayek and all those other dead guys that no one really knows about anymore. I was going to say, there go half the listeners right there. (laughs) That is, is, yeah, no, that's that's probably true. But with that, (laughs) we thank you for your patience as we figure ourselves out, as we get everything situated into technology, into our formatting and whatnot. But I think today is going to be interesting enough. So stick with us because we're going to talk about separation of powers. What powers? Powers of government. What powers of government? Are we talking about taxes? Are we talking about the ability to make you wear a mask? What what powers are we discussing? When someone says the powers of government, what the hell is that? <laughs> well, that depends on who you ask, but can definitely be, <laughs> you know, the powers government claims to have, and then a discussion on do they actually have the like like are they entitled to those powers? Um, which is why it can go down a lot of rabbit trails. But I think. Uh, today we'll cover the constitutional powers of government, executive, judicial, legislative, and how those should work together or, or should be separate and, and have the right kind of division that the Constitution lays out. And that's the key. When we're talking about separation of powers, right, we're talking about the three branches of government, which uh, I will assume you all know, but, you know, obviously the executive, um, the legislative, and the judiciary. and their separate functions. They're all given powers in the constitution to do very different things um, and thus not do certain things. They're also this key with separation of powers is that one branch isn't supposed to be exercising the powers of another branch for very specific reasons. So I think that's a really, what a lot of people don't realize, right, is that obviously they know that the constitution created these three branches of government, article one, two, three, right? Boom, done. The constitution, unlike the articles from last week, I'm, I'm going to manage to segue it every time and I'm going to be so stoked that I do. But <laughs> the constitution is a, is a document that enumerates the powers of government. You can't have government without giving something up, which is what we talked about with the declaration of independence, two for two. Um, Government is those powers that we've given up and we're giving them very specific things that they can do. And that's why when you hear people talk about, you know, enumerated powers, that's what we're talking about. There are things in the constitution that certain branches can do. There's also things in the constitution that certain branches can't do. But the important distinction there is if we didn't say that the branch of government can do it, then they can't do it inherently. This it's is not a wholly permissive document. Yeah. This is one of those things where, you know, when you do something stupid as, as a little kid and your mom comes out and yells at you saying, why the hell did you do that? And you say, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't. Well, <laughs> theoretically, the government can't get away with that kind of excuse. Theoretically, if the government does something and we say, hey, we didn't tell you you could do that. The government can't come back at us and say, well, you didn't say I couldn't do it. Theoretically, that's a no fly argument. Although, in recent years, that's exactly, when I say recent years, I mean like decades since the 1920s. That's exactly what's what, what the government is trying to do. These individual powers. Yeah, I like, like the, the analogy there, though, that Congress is the little kid complaining to 
<laughs> mom that she didn't say she couldn't. That's basically been Congress for the past hundred and something years. Chris, have your have your kiddos used that excuse on you yet? Oh, for sure. They've probably used every excuse in the book. My my son in particular is extremely nuanced. Like I've already told him he should absolutely be an attorney. Like he is better at words than I am. And if I don't catch every little thing, and he's not lying. It's like he actually truly said a different word. So if I don't use words the right way, he will pounce. <laughs> Screw the spirit of the law, mom. You, the letter of the law is all I care about. It is, it is key, those exact words. <laughs> Your son is just a hardcore textualist. You're just raising the next. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, there we go. <laughs> when we talk about these powers, you no, know, we talk about when I think of powers of government, there are, there are little p powers, you know, power to tax, power to go to war, power to um, establish a post office. But then there are the big p powers, judiciary, executive, legislative, and all that. And usually when we think about a government, you know, we think about a government having all three in usually one format. You know, we're talking about an absolute monarch. He's got all three. He is, he is the man that writes the law, who enforces the law, who interprets his own law. You know, then we have parliamentary systems where it's yeah, the executive and the legislative are kind of together and then the judiciary is somewhat over there. And then you get a, the American style where it's everyone's dancing to their own tune, theoretically, and they are not supposed to be, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> to, to use another analogy, it's at a, like a high school dance when you've got to keep your arms at a distance, like dancing with each other, you know, leave room for Jesus while you're dancing, kiddos. That's theoretically how the branches of government are supposed to work in our national, national Congress president and court system. But that's, no, where, where, where the hell does this idea of separation of powers come from? Like you would think it'd be just be easier more efficient, more effective for government to have all the powers into one person. No, like an absolute king or uh, something. Why, why, why is the Parliament of the United Kingdom, in which their executive and their legislative are one thing, why is that inferior to the American style? Right? Where, where does separation of powers come from? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of technical and historical answers that my guess is Cody is right on the money up for. But um, I also think just in concept, because um, I love concepts and principles, uh, it's, it's about freedom. And I think the Americans at the time of the revolution saw that the English system, which at the time was full on monarchy, all that power vested in one individual. That's why we rebelled. That's why we had a revolution when it really was centered on the concept of liberty. But then when they went away from the Articles Confederation, seeing that in when you don't have the accurate division of power between branches and explicit definition of what power belongs to what branch, that kind of falls apart because humans are humans and we do need guidelines and systems um, to be successful often. But they created those three branches to create a system that had checks and balances. And you see that today when, when a certain branch declines to exercise the power that they do have, that we have granted to them, you see another branch step in and take all that power. Uh, and you can most see that today in executive and legislative branch when the legislative branch, because <laughs> Congress is in chaos, uh, falls back and declines to take the power they have, often the executive branch will step in and take it. Um, so but that's not how the system was meant to work. A true freedom and true liberty is designed when each branch stays in its lane, keeps that separation, but is a check and balance on each other. And I think that was the design of the system, however far away we may have fallen. <laughs> yeah. And just building on that and Stanton, something you said, you said, wouldn't it be easier if all three were in one? Absolutely. It's way easier for that one person <laughs> because then they could do whatever they want and get away with it. And if you're part of the ruling class, if you're you know, one of the favored few in that system, yeah, it works really well for you because it's really easy for you to get justice when you, when you want it and your type of justice, not true natural justice. So it's, it's this system of, yeah, I mean, it'd be a lot simpler if you didn't have to jump through a lot of hoops, but those hoops are what preserve individual liberty. It should be hard for government to do things because government inherently is force, right? It hurts you or it can hurt you if you don't do what it says to do. So making it more difficult for that to happen was an important 
function of the system, not a flaw of the system. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot about, well, I talked a lot about Patrick Henry when we were talking about the <laughs> articles. And when you're talking about separation of powers and you're talking about government, right, it's Madison's time to shine. And the Federalist Papers are all just full of references about this and talking about it. And in Federalist 47, he says that if, you know, in a government where all three branches are combined, that's tyranny. And that's what they were pushing back against. So it was very important to them that they were pushing these branches separate in order to ensure that no one branch could tread on your liberty without at least some other branch being able to sign off on it. And in Federalist 51, uh, Madison also says the important thing about government, right, is they believed that they needed to create this government in order to preserve individual liberty, but then the next function of government was trying to ensure that it didn't just grow to an insurmountable beast. And so it's the system of separating the powers that the king had and, and that, you know, absolute monarchs and tyrants had, but also creating enough checks and balances, which we've heard a ton of times, to ensure that not one single one of those branches was able to grow too powerful or was able to take too much power from the others. One of the interesting things from the Federalist Papers, and I think it was you know, 51 itself, might have been 10, the dangers of factions. Um, you know, Madison was absolutely, utterly terrified of the idea of rival factions, those with a common interest adverse to the common good, um, he was absolutely terrified of them. And he's, he was trying to figure out a way to make sure that a government could push them down to, to end. You no, know, we, we typically call factions today interest groups or special groups. You know, to push them down without depriving them of liberty. That was the, the great paradox. How do you stop something that is caused by the very freedom you want to achieve? And he likewise argued, you know, just as... We want to avoid a government tyranny over us. We also want to avoid a factional tyranny uh, from manifesting itself in the government. And the best way to do that was to ensure that there were so many access points to government that no one group or no one faction could control the entire machinery of the state, right? And I always found that interesting. But this idea of separation of powers, is it's relatively new, right? So, you know, you get the idea of the Magna Carta and the king having to, you know, give up some of his power. Um, he can't do everything unless he has some consent from the nobles, from the barons. But is this a new idea or is this an old idea? I'm not sure I know the origins of separation of powers. Do you, Cody? Oh, this is a very old idea. Um, I mean, I'm sure the origins date back further than this, but the founders were very much students of history and were a big fan of the Roman Republic. And the Roman Republic operated in a kind of pay-to-play version of separation of powers. It definitely wasn't everybody having equal rights. I mean, Rome had slaves, Rome had citizens that, or rather people that weren't considered citizens. There's, there's a lot of other problems with Rome underlying their structure but they had this system of a senate and consuls consuls were inevitably you know the controllers of the military for a year they had to be re-elected every year they had to be present in rome to be re-elected so you couldn't have this like perpetual campaign and that's how they controlled the let's call it the executive in rome so they also there was this unwritten rule that you couldn't march on Rome with your army as a as a consul and we all know the famous violation of that principle Julius Caesar the crossing of the Rubicon 49, right crossing the Rubicon in 49 so that was a violation of their system because the executive then was marching on Rome with the authority to then use it against Roman citizens and that was a problem you also have this pseudo popular section, which I guess you could kind of compare to our house of representatives in a, in a little bit of a sense where you have the tribunes mm. and they represented the plebeian class, which was the working class. And the idea was that originally they weren't supposed to be able to propose laws, but they could veto laws that the Roman Senate had passed. Right. Cause so the Senate was, was basically just like a bunch of wealthy patriarchs, right? Yeah. Okay. Dead on. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a bunch of rich landowning guys, pretty much. I mean, there were some new bloods. The equestrian class was like the new bloods. And then you had the the old bloods as well. But yeah, so the the tribunes could veto those laws. And that kind of operated as like a, a power check. But the founders saw that system and took a lot of a lot of things away from it in order to kind of create the three branches. There also was a, a form of judiciary in Rome as well. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, Chrissy, you, you know, you're a, you're a Republican operative, right? And, um, <laughs> so some mean, people say you, you are, a, you are a party operative. You are of the, you are of the echelon of, of, of those in the end, right? When you're working, I don't know about with, that, but that's not what people like to say. Once you get elected to anything in the party, that's true. You're suddenly the establishment. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, yeah, that word, I, that word is always confusing me because if you're in, if you're in office, you are by definition establishment. Anyway, yes, anyway, <laughs> when you're working with um, Republican colleagues across the state, uh, across the country, even. Um, do Republicans in the Senate get along with Republicans in the House? And if so, how often? <laughs> no, that's a very interesting question. And I think the answer is yes. There's a lot of work between, the, between both houses, Congress and the Senate. I mean, honestly, if you want to accomplish anything, there has to be. And obviously, we've seen a bunch of work in DC that that is left undone and is not accomplished. And that's one of the things, even in polls, that people see that the American people have no faith in Congress, doesn't think Congress, and that means both houses, can get anything done because they largely uh, do nothing other than argue and create a big political mess instead of actually accomplishing things for the American people. But, I mean, while yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of allies that are built. Um, certain senators get along with certain congressmen, <laughs> and some senators hate some congressmen, and vice versa. But I think the biggest differences you see is because con- congressmen can often be very, very cornered, for lack of a better word, by the specific aspects of their district. Mm. I mean, take AOC just for fun. Her district is very unique. Like, she would not get elected in 90% of the United States of America. But in her district, her people actually like what she talks about, shockingly to the rest of us. Uh, she could, but she, could she win statewide office in New York? No, because, and that's what a senator has to do. So you'll see congressmen that just do not identify with the politics of their senators because they're representing this very small district, which is what the Constitution intended them to do, but it really does not represent the state as a whole. So that's where you see the breakdown in relationships a lot of time. And this is something that I've been absolutely fascinated by. You know, we talk about separation of powers between Congress and the president, the president mm-hmm. and the judiciary, and then all three together. But one of the things that I think are the framers of the Constitution did so well, and, and, and this is the reason I asked the question to kind of get your personal experience, is that Congress, theoretically, based off the John Lockean theory of government, being the legislative power should have the most powers, small powers. You should have the greatest authority to act, being the greatest representation of the people, the sovereign. But in that, it poses a danger. If it has the most authority, if it has the most power, then it's a risk to the other two, which then would just destabilize the whole thing. And this is where I think the framers are so clever. They literally just take Congress and break it in half. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a practical reason for that, the, the Connecticut compromise between Virginia and New Jersey. But theoretically, at, at, its, at its intellectual foundation, there's a separation of powers between one power itself. And that's always gotten me interested because, you know, there was a, there was a time where, we, where you had a, a – well, I mean – during, during the uh, Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare passage, right? You know, you had a Democrat Senate and a Democrat House, and they did pass the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, there is that. But the Democrats in the Senate had very different ideas than the Democrats in the House. And you, know, and you mentioned that local interest versus general interest, but mm-hmm. we, we, we saw compromise within its own party to pass a law. So, it, and, the, and I think this is a testimony to Madison, to the framers, that liberty is best served when you 
set power against power, ambition against ambition. And this is, I think this is the point you were making earlier, Cody, is that it, both of you were making, is that, you know, the Affordable Care Act could have been a lot more intervening in the healthcare economy than what it is today, had it not been for the compromising aspect of separation of powers within Congress itself. Yeah, and this was even more nuanced or or more maybe distinguished actually at the founding because so so the House of Representatives is about as close to as we get to any form of direct democracy, right? Mm-hmm. You a fairly small proportionately small group of people are voting for one individual to represent you that has one vote so on and so forth, right? That's about as close to as a true direct democracy. You could go and walk in, listen to them, read the proposed laws, vote yes or no, and walk out. I mean, that was it was truly a direct democracy. The founders and framers realized that this was problematic because you could just get the heat of the passion in order to pass laws. If you you know, fire up a crowd and get 51% of people excited and get them all happy and, and ready to go, then you can pass any law you want. And that's a problem. They wanted to appeal to this higher level of reasoning. Um, You know, the Greek philosophers call this logos. And this is reasoning outside of these like hot passions. So the House of Representatives is about as close as we get to this like really hotly debated that side of the, the conversation. And then remember, before the 17th Amendment, senators were elected predominantly by state governments, not by the people. Now, it was up to the various states how they decided to pick their um, senators, but initially most of those states reserved that power to the legislatures, which meant who you voted into state office, those people got to pick your senators. So your senators almost represented this the state government in federal Congress, and the House of Representatives represented the individual people. And the idea there is you get this balance between more direct democracy versus more reserved Republican representative form of government. And you have that kind of interesting balance where, you know, passion shouldn't win out the day, it should be reason. Yeah, no, and I think you make a really great point, Cody, that since we are a republic and not a democracy, as so many love to say, uh, it, that actually is set up to protect the rights of the minority against the rights of the majority, even though the majority may be loud, they may be passionate, they, but they also may be misled. And when you have representatives who vote on a lot of these instead of always the direct vote of the people, like sure, the direct vote of the people now elects every senator and every congressman and the president and all of that, but we elect representatives to go study those laws, to go figure out what actually preserves the rights of everyone, not just the loudest people or the special interest groups with the most money. Uh, and obviously we're talking about how the system should work, not necessarily how it does work, but I think that's why it's really important for people to remember that America is a republic, which is good, not outdated, because without that Republican form of government, you do not have the protection of the minority. Yeah, so, this is the same problem as before, right? It's not the system that's broken. It's our application of the system. It's, absolutely. You know, it's one thing. That's what I'm worried about us taking out of all these demonstrations and everything, right? It's not, let's not fix the system. It's put our guy in charge and give him more power. I mean, that's a bad idea, no matter what side you're on. I, I yeah. once heard somebody say, like, any law you want passed, assume that you pass it and then hand it over to your political opponent for 10 years and see what they can do with it. And that's the problem is everybody thinks, oh, we want government to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and we need to give them more power to do it. But really, it's it's if you rein the power back, you'll be better off. And that's what the founders saw. They wanted to rein the power back and give government and Congress just enough to preserve individual liberty. Cody, I like how you said that. The the system itself is now dated. It's the application. So where in the Constitution does it say that these three powers or that the three branches, Congress, President, and the courts must be separate? You know, we see that, you know, Congress has the power to declare war and we see the president has the power to move troops, but we don't see anything that says only the president can do this, only Congress can do that. You know, we talked about enumeration earlier. 
that if they don't have the power, they can't do it. But like, is there anything else that's like formally set in stone or supposed to be set in stone that forbids them from doing the other's jobs? Yeah, and essentially those are what we call the vesting clauses. So the way that we viewed the vesting clauses initially uh, at the founding, and so the vesting clauses are what gives each branch their power. It vests them with X power. Um, this is Article 1, Section 1, Article 2, Section 1, and Article 3, Section 1 for Congress, President, and the Judiciary. Congress, the Executive, and the Judiciary, respectively. So the idea behind the vesting clause, again, it's really important to remember, the Constitution is a document of enumerated powers. What we've given you is what you can do. You can't go to mom later on and say, but you didn't say I couldn't, because that's, that's the whole purpose of what the vesting clause is. Is basically, that would be your mom sitting you down and going, you can only do the things that I say you can do. And then when you go, oh, but I, you didn't say I could breathe, then the answer under our Constitution would be, then you can't. So it's actually a really simple system when you look at it straightforward, and that's how they kind of viewed those vesting clauses and giving them powers. And they enumerate powers in the sections. They also enumerate some things you can't do. Um, so for Congress, right, the enumerated powers are Article One, Section 8. What you can't do is Article One, Section 9. Um, for the president, there are some things he can't do. Those are pretty much limited to high crimes and misdemeanors. And for the judiciary, they are the, supposed to be the smallest and or the most limited maybe might be the better way of saying that. And they can adjudicate cases and controversies and they can't have bad behavior and that's about it. <laughs> Chrissy, what would it take, you know, as, as Cody so greatly desires, what would it take to make these vesting clauses more strictly respected? What, what would it take either in law or in courts to go back to a firm respect for the separation of powers. And actually, hold on, let me, let me preface that because that, that, that implies that there's something wrong with what we're doing today. <laughs> what are we doing wrong? Like, you know, the president's not making laws, is he? <laughs> well, no, that's actually one of the biggest problems in general and not specifically the current president, but just in general with federal agencies and, and the executive, whether we're talking about executives of states, just because I'll throw that in there, even though we're talking about federal constitution, um, that's often what affects people the most, though, is what the executive of their state does. But then certainly the executive of the United States, the president, has over the years collected enough powers that people claim fall under the vesting clause or the enumerated powers that enable them to form all these uh, federal or the state level executive agencies. And these agencies are basically full of unelected bureaucrats who do make the equivalent of laws. I mean, while they may not be on the statute book, there are all these rules that are promulgated and that, you know, to get licenses, businesses have to comply with them. And it's layers upon layers of all these rules that almost no one with a, a normal life could sit down and read and understand that they are subject to simply because they want to start a business or simply because they want to participate in some very normal activity. They're actually subject to all these executive level laws at their state and at the federal government level. So while it may not technically be the executive branch passing laws, rules promulgated by agencies at the executive level are the equivalent of laws and have the same effect on people's lives. They have the force of law, essentially. So they might as well be law. It's, it, you know. Exactly. We, we have something in Colorado, not, not at risk of drawing the ire of others. In Colorado, and I'm sure you both are aware of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, right? Oh, yeah. Now, mm -hmm. none of us here are opposed to civil rights. In fact, you're, you're lawyers. You fight for civil rights, thank God. But this particular institution, granted, it's not a federal one, but I feel like this, it, it's a state-level institution, but I feel like its application resembles what happens at the federal level. Mm -hmm. It issues edicts on civil rights, it enforces it with fines and fees. And then if you want to protest their, uh, their, their application of it, their execution of it, you don't go to a court. You can't sue them in a, in a judicial system. You go to an adjudication board. Is that what we see in the federal level? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you have agencies that can promulgate, federal agencies that promulgate rules and regulations. Um, if you are found to be in violation thereof, you have to start at the administrative agency itself. So you go to the board. Some agencies even have their own appellate level. So like if you lose at a with a ALJ, administrative law justice judge, um, then you would go to their own internal appellate version. Once you lose there, then you can go into a federal courtroom. But you're a few years in at and least. And a lot of might, money. Might be, yeah, tens of thousands of dollars in, potentially hundreds of thousands, depending on what the issue is. Uh, so you have these. And then there, here's the other problem, right? Then you get into a federal court. You think you're good to go. And now there's these doctrines floating out there that were created by judges that basically say, oh, we're a federal court. Yeah, we adjudicate cases and controversies, but we're going to defer to the agency's interpretation of their own rules. And their is that own the Chevron doctrine? Yeah. So Chevron yeah. is statutory interpretation. And then the other one's called our, and that's when they're um, interpreting their interpreting, interpreting their own internal regulations. So basically you get to a court, you think you finally get a fair shake and the court goes, well, they're the expert. And if they say you did something bad, we're going to go ahead and agree that you probably did something bad unless you can really prove that they did, that you didn't like, it's this crazy change in, in this crazy shift of giving so much deference to the agencies. And now this is, and this is the thing that uh, I've only just recently learned in the past, oh, probably past few months, a year, you know, I've always just assumed, and you know, I don't think it's wrong for me to assume is that the ability of these federal agencies to promulgate these rules and then enforce them and then have adjudication power over them is vested to them by Congress. Congress says, Hey, you know, we want to regulate the environment, but none of us 535 schmucks knows how to actually do that. So we're going to tell you, the EPA, hey, you guys are experts. You hire the scientists. You do it. We want what? Here's the law: clean the rivers. And they ask, well, what does what, what, what does clean mean, Senator? I don't know. Define it yourself. Okay. And so, you know. Welcome to bureaucracy 101. <laughs> and this is and this is what I'm saying. Reasonably speaking, you know, the bureaucracies don't really have a choice. Congress is so vague or, in my opinion, lazy in their laws that when, when they tell these executive agencies to do something, that they just say, you do it for us. And yet it has the authority of Congress given to them. So you know, to the outsider, it all looks... It all looks legal. It all looks just fine. Congress says do this. So it's not a violation of separation of powers. Why is this or is this not actually a violation of the vesting clauses themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think, Stanton, I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. But I think that your point that Congress is being lazy is actually correct. Uh, I think they would rather you stand say that, like, up there. not often correct. <laughs> <laughs> You got Thanks one body right for once. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'd really, I mean, if you ever watch on C-SPAN, um, I, I do, because I'm nerdy enough to do it, their debates on the House and Senate floor, a lot of times it's campaign speeches they're giving up there. They're not actually doing their job. There's one man in the chamber of four uh, 435. Like there's no one else oh, yeah. in there except them. No, and that and that's what they're experts in doing right now. And that certainly doesn't go for every one of them. Some of them certainly do a good job, but too many of them use it as an opportunity to give campaign speeches. They can capture the video and go home and show it and show that they're fighting. But it actually does does very little to solve these real issues. Mm -hmm. um, in my view, one of the biggest problems that Congress has is these insanely long bills in which they do delegate authority to executive agencies and so, and people aren't even aware that that authority has been delegated and given away from the people who they elected to go there and solve the problems and so all these bureaucrats are doing it behind the scenes and sure there's public comment periods but how are people supposed to know where they even find which of the 50 million federal agencies <laughs> accepts their public comment. So it basically is taking government and almost put it to a level where the average citizen cannot get involved because they don't know. It's no longer just call your Senator, call your Congressman. It's 
find the federal agency and the unelected bureaucrat who's actually in charge of that definition and that decision. And that just becomes a system the average person can't participate in. The public comments thing, that this is, this is the thing I find the most insidious aspect of this whole system, right? The whole concept behind the separation of powers between all three branches, besides the fact that we want to preserve liberty from a tyrannical government, was what I mentioned before that we wanted to ensure that no one special faction could seize control of the, of the, of the governmental process. And th- I, I get so riled up about this, that public comment section, right? You know, Hey, we're going to regulate, you know, how much pollutants you can put in the air. We're going to regulate how, uh, how, uh, you know, how long the chassis of your car can be when you're out in the road, if you're going to be classified as a, sedan versus an SUV or whatever nonsense, right? Be quite frank, the only people who really care about this are businesses, and there's no problem with that, right? If 90% of the government action, bureaucratic regulation is on business, then it's expected that 90% of special interest groups are going to be business lobbyists. No dub, there's the math. But this is the part that makes me frustrated because no one cares about it and because you can't just call up say hey senator i hear you're doing this i don't like that that you have to go find someone that you have to put in a public comment that you have to know exactly what you're talking about to make the comment worth a damn the only people who have the information who have the access to put in those public comments are well financed well connected very in the in people and so it totally diminishes the entire republic de- democratic process of the people rule. Now we just have bureaucrats with corporate crony input rule. And this to me is a major betrayal of the idea of separation of powers. How, do, how the hell did we get into this problem? It, yeah, wow. Um, there's so much to unpack here. <laughs> um, I, how did we get to the problem? I think that's actually what people should really take away. And I think this is what people should really focus in on and think about is the the founders and framers predicted a lot of things. They planned for a lot of things. They built in contingencies. What they didn't predict is that Congress would fundamentally change. What they couldn't have predicted is that a branch of government would want to give up power. Mm. So their entire idea here, right, is that all of these branches are going to be competing for power, power, power. But as soon as you've got two branches that outweigh the other, you're going to be fine because you're not going to be able to have these crazy power grabs. You're not going to be able to have factions take over one and take over the others. But Congress has fundamentally shifted. And this is something that Christy was talking about a little bit. And Congress isn't making really resounding laws very often anymore. Now what they're doing is they're running for office. As soon as they get elected, they start campaigning and running for office again. Not all of them, but but a good chunk of them. And the problem there is that what the founders couldn't anticipate is not only that a, a branch would give up power, but, but that you could turn politics into this crazy long career path that finances itself. So what Congress realized, or what individual Congress people realized is they can turn their careers into just being congressmen. And it's easier for them to go and find a district where they align fairly closely, continue to work for them, continue to be elected by them, continue to be you know, put into office, and they're continually raising money, they're making a salary, they're deriving other benefits from it. And what they realized there is, well, now if I make laws, I could become unpopular. So it's it's easier for them. And I think you're being a little charitable, Sam, when you're talking about, oh, well, we're not the experts. You guys are the experts. You define how to clean up. No, 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 no. They could easily define what they meant by <laughs> clean up the waterways. They don't want to. They really just are lazy. They, yeah, it's not laziness. It would, it would make them unpopular. Mm. And if it makes them unpopular, then it's difficult to be reelected. It's easier for them to maintain their career as a congressperson if they don't make unpopular laws. And that's what the founders couldn't have anticipated. They, or they, they didn't anticipate, I guess, is they didn't anticipate that Congress was going to shift into its own career path and realize doing the return on investment analysis that it's better for them if they don't make laws. And now they're deferring all of that to the executive. 
And the agencies like you're talking about are like mini tyrants that Madison warned about in Federalist 47. Those agencies have their own pseudo executive, whomever's in charge of the agency. They have their own kind of legislative power because they can interpret statutes and they can make their own regulations and interpret them. And they have their own judiciary because they have review boards and they've got courts of appeal, like not real courts of appeals, but appellate bodies at times. So you, you've got little mini tier, like tyranny sections. Fiefdoms, and, yeah. Fiefdoms, oh, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. You got little <laughs> fiefdoms all over. So every agency it's its own, is its own fiefdom. The only difference is there is some measure of control over them still by the branches, but that's kind of tough. This is, and I think we're going to close out because I've got a really interesting question. I think it's interesting. I, I'm fascinated by my own question. And I want to ask this of both of you, right? No. You're going to make me admit something I don't want to admit again, aren't you? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'll, I, I will promise you that I will offer my own opinion this time, right? Oh, we'll uh, figure pro- out one I, of these days whether you're a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist. I don't care how many episodes it takes. <laughs> I will get it out of you. <laughs> that's fair that's fair we'll I, I, we'll make it we'll make that the 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 show objective is stanton and a, a federalist or an anti-federalist <laughs> here's my question right so we're trying we we obviously want to bring back a form of government that is going to secure liberty okay so here's my question what is the most practical way to do that today and i'm gonna lay out some options you can all obviously throw in your own option bring back the articles of confederation oh my god practical cody practical <laughs> they weren't even practical in like 1780 they're definitely, <laughs> they're definitely not they're, those things are 12 feet under the ground oh. um one idea i i've always thought is no you could elect better politicians but i feel like that's just a non-starter in my opinion that's just that's a bad that's a bad system to rely on perhaps a, a some form of constitutional amendment that would re purpose the bureaucracy so that you know because one of the problems with the bureaucracy is that it serves two masters right it serves the president but it also has to answer to congress for funding and so what it does is instead of being split it actually pits the president and congress against each other and allows the bureaucracy to just do whatever it wants saying Oh, well, mommy said this, but daddy said that. I'll do whatever I want. And so one problem, one, one aspect is a constitutional amendment to somehow reign in the bureaucracy. Legally, I don't even know how that would look. The other option I'm thinking of, it's a little more, I don't know, out there, but I feel it's a simpler solution, a more elegant solution, is to abandon this idea of a... Roman style republic and oh, go for me. and go for a parliamentary <laughs> system. And here's why. In the parliamentary system, yes, there is kind of one person that that you know is the linchpin of government, the prime minister, right? And they have a pretty extensive control over all their ministers, all over all the little bureaucratic fiefdoms. But that prime minister has to answer very closely and in very much in tune to the members of parliament that, you know, there's a big, there's a big gathering. You know, we, you know, Chrissy, we were talking about how no one's in the chambers actually debating. They have the prime minister's questions. All, you know, 500, 600 men, uh, members of parliament are just throwing grenades at the prime minister saying, answer for this, answer for that. Tell me what the hell's going on. In which case now you get, you know, there, we've lost the separation of powers, right? This thing that we've been cherished so long, we've abandoned it, but in its place, we have a more, shall I say, scrutiny of the bureaucracy by those who would actually regulate it. And this is what, this is what I'm saying. We've, we basically operate like that. The Congress has abandoned its, its interest in reigning in the power of the executive and but we also have no scrutiny of the bureaucracy. At least we don't have it enough, in my opinion. Parliament, yeah, they abandoned it, but they have at scrutiny. So this is my question. Do we do a series of constitutional amendments to rein in the bureaucracy or to re- reignite the vesting clauses? Or to say, you know what? This is a charade. Screw it. Let's do a parliamentary system. 
Well, uh, those are very involved and good questions. I think I'll say that I always find the parliamentary system very interesting, like the movie Amazing Grace and then the TV show Poldark, both of which highlight Parliament, mm -hmm. are two of my favorites. I love watching them. But I think when we're talking about really promoting liberty, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, you will see this as a pattern. And what I say, I believe the fact that the United States remains a world power is essential for liberty to be promoted around the world. And I think when you look at the governments and the nations that have a parliamentary system, Britain, Canada, there's a reason they're not the world power. There's a reason some countries listen to them, but not as many as listen to the United States. They don't have as much influence over the world. Uh, I think part of that is owing to their system. There's a whole lot of other reasons. So I, I personally, as much as I find Parliament entertaining, and, and to your point, Stan, they have a lot of good aspects. They really do. It's certainly a lot more free than many other government systems in the world. I still believe the American system is the ideal that promotes the most freedom. Uh, my personal suggestions this wouldn't solve all the problems. But one, I actually do think we should pass a federal uh, term limit law. I think when you have, Thomas Jefferson said something about um, in the context of government, man is not designed to be trusted for life. <laughs> and he, he wrote that in a letter to someone in 1823. And I think that's what we see when, when people are constantly campaigning because they know they can, and they're constantly just trying to get themselves established for a life. Those are the people that are sold out to the special interest. Those are the people that are willing to push it off to the bureaucracy because they want to remain popular. They want to get reelected. I do not like it when our good conservative people self-impose term limits. I think then the good people get out and the bad people stay in. Um, but if we could pass a national law on term limits, I think that'd be a good solution. And then secondly, I think, this will be my last point, I think a, a president who is actually willing to ab abolish federal departments and federal agencies. And, and currently, while the executive may have more power than they should, they have the power to abolish some of those departments and agencies. And I think they should have the guts to do it. Hmm. And that would solve some of our problems. All right. So you, so you want to reform the Republic, not abandon it. You are a anti-federalist in this regard, in this <laughs> regard. Well, Cody. Um, <laughs> um, I, what will also be probably a recurring theme is I, agree with you at the end, your inevitable conclusion, Christy, but uh, I don't <laughs> necessarily agree with the, the why or the how. Uh, I will always care very little for, you know, expanding our influence to other nations. I think it's important to be a beacon, but uh, beacons emit. They don't go and interfere when necessary. I mean, look, uh, we'll save that for a different day, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think you can name a parliament in the world that's created a system that protects individual liberty like our system has. Our system might not be, it's not being followed, it's not being abided by, but it's still better than what a lot of other countries have. So I don't see a parliamentary system being better. I think there's too much power vested at the top. I don't think that there's enough uh, diffusion from there. Um, I don't, I we'll save term limits for, for another day as well. <laughs> There's that, you know, whole Republican form of government guarantee clause in there. But um, I, I actually am going to answer your question by taking none of the options, Stanton, because I'm a lawyer and I get to do that. Sure. And <laughs> now you know how every single one of my teachers has felt through my entire life. <laughs> hey, I, I have my own kind of unique answer. So we'll see if we're, we'll see how well we match up here. I, I think the answer is very much civic education. Mm. I think the answer is that people don't understand the system and they feel like it's the system is wronging them. And I don't think they realize that there's so much power in going back to the way the system was. Now, there are a lot of things that we don't want to go back to. And there's a lot of like our current understanding of equal protection is light years beyond what was in place in the 1800s. So we don't want to go back to that, right? But we do want to go back to a system where the federal government is reined in. People should care a lot more about their local governments. People should care a lot more about their city board, their municipal board. People should care a lot more about what's happening in their state than they care about uh, the federal presidential election. I mean, that should be such a small thought in our lives. And I think if people realize that they will get so much more out of government 
they'll have so much more influence and they'll be able to, to dictate where their funding goes if they bring power back home. I think when people realize that, that's a very powerful thing. People think that giving the federal government more power and then putting their guy in charge, whatever guy that is, mm-hmm. or girl, uh, that that's going to make everything better. But really what makes everything better is bring it back home. Let's understand why we had this, you know, initial system that was founded on friendship of the many <laughs> states. And Perpetual so I, I think that's the really, the really important answer is I think civic education. I think people should, should realize what the system actually is and, and learn what the constitution tries to do before they try and tear it down. You certainly won't get a, a no from me on more civic education. That's no, that's how I make money. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the system the framers designed is really, really clever, really, really brilliant for the idea of liberty. Um, I don't know if I was if I was to do a series of constitutional amendments. First off, I would define legislative, executive, and judicial. Like I would, I would, I would define those terms. I'd also define a lot of other terms like necessary and proper and commerce so that the courts can get their grubby little hands out of it. But if I was to have a, like a whole new system on its own, I, I'm attracted to the idea of a semi-presidential system, a president that is separate from the legislative, but a legislative that has structurally, not just politically, but structurally more interest in the regulation of the government as a whole, right? Uh, uh, you know, we 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 typically call the Speaker of the House the best equivalent of a of a prime minister to a king and a president. But I would actually just you know go straight forward. Just have someone in the legislature that is almost as well equipped as the executive to deal with the bureaucracy as the president is. That way, there the I don't know. Maybe maybe that just causes more problems than, than it is. But I would certainly certainly define executive executive legislative and judicial as terms more because you know man my all of my answers just pale in comparison to yours cody it was such a brilliant <laughs> answer civic education i the, the, the teacher answer you're welcome it's it's so brilliant a plus cody gold stars all oh, the way man. around okay and i got um, called brilliant brilliant <laughs> so separation of powers i think and i think we're all more or less there Separation of powers is really essential to the preservation of liberty. It ensures that the government cannot concentrate power in itself to overwhelm its citizens. Um, It ensures that when done correctly, no one special interest group or groups of interest groups are able to acquire so much influence that we deteriorate the fundamental value of the sovereign people. Um, and we gotta we gotta do something. We gotta realign government back into it. You know, whether it's abolishing the system as a whole, which is radical, or a series of uh, a series of, uh, of amendments, along with a really strong commitment to our core fundamental values, our civic education. Um, but with yeah, that, people need to get out and learn. I think that's it. And I get tired of this from everybody, all sides, no matter what. But there's this idea that like if you know you're on one side the constitution's bad and if on your if you're on the other side that the constitution agrees with everything you say it does and i think everybody suffers from a, a, you know a lack of education in that sense like if you're going to say something's unconstitutional read the constitution and figure out where it is or isn't unconstitutional understand what you're saying if you're going to say that you know a new socialist utopia is better than a constitutional republic then you better learn what a constitutional republic is so you can say why it's better. If your answer is because the government is bad, that's not, doesn't mean it's because if it's a constitutional republic. A lot of times that means it's because the government's doing something it shouldn't be doing. Yep. So I, yeah, I'll stop. That's a great Sorry. Point. I'm just going to keep. Last thoughts, Christy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think those are great thoughts. I couldn't agree with you guys more on the importance of education. Um, fun fact, this is going to be, the year that my kids get introduced to the constitution, they are assigned, I, I homeschool them, but they are assigned a book called The Constitution Rocks for kids and they're elementary age. So I need tips on how to present it to them, but we'll start education. All right. <laughs> at home, but I'm I, here I for that. I'm here for that. That's awesome. 
Well, ladies just and make gentlemen, them listen to our podcast. Just sit them down and just I totally should. force feed it into a nonstop. We are generally no family friendly. Generally speaking, <laughs> I don't think we've said anything too egregious. But with that, ladies and gentlemen, separation of powers is important, and we should work and strive to do what we can as citizens to bring it back. That is going to conclude our episode today. We're getting ourselves firmly planted on the ground so that we know how to do this better and more frequently and in a more regulated and orderly fashion. Hopefully next time we have another topic in which we can highlight, you know, are you a Federalist or Anti-Federalist? Is Stanton one or the other? The world may never know. Tune in next week to find out. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time.